Hello, hello, y'all. Hey, it's me, Robin. And before we get into today's episode, I'm here to let you know that the club is open right now for new members. I'm going to take a couple minutes to fill you in on all that the club is offering right now. So if you know for sure you're not interested in joining the club, you're just going to want to hit the forward button a few times until you hear that baffling behavior show jingle. Okay, so the club is a virtual community for families of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many families in the club are parenting kids with a history of complex trauma, but definitely not all. Some are parenting kids with vulnerabilities that emerge from their neurotype or their sensory system or their giftedness or their neuroimmune disorder. And of course, some have no idea why their child's nervous system is so vulnerable. The primary purpose of the club and why I've created it the way that I have is connection and co-regulation. Because when I reflect back on my time as a therapist, it wasn't the skills and strategies and tools and techniques I taught parents that mattered the most. What mattered most was how connection and co-regulation strengthened their owl brain so that they could stay more regulated in the face of the chaos in their home. Then they could, number one, actually use the tools, and number two, start to feel a little bit better even before the tools started to work. The club can be accessed online both through your browser on your computer and through an app. And it's open, of course, 24-7. There's a very active forum, a huge video library, and multiple live events every month. Sometimes I teach a masterclass on a specific topic. Sometimes we come together for group coaching or just to ask questions and pick, pick my brain. We have two sessions every month called Connect and Co-Regulates, and those are designed to offer exactly that. There's no teaching, no coaching, just a place for you to be seen and heard by people who get it. Currently, we are also offering once a month bonus sessions for siblings of dysregulated kids. The club is intended to be kind of like a buffet. There is a ton in it, not because you're supposed to do everything in the club. You take what you need when you need it and come back when you're ready for more. If you could use a little extra support, consider joining us. You can read all about all the details over at robingobel.com slash the club. I'll put a link in the show notes And we're open today until the end of the day, Friday, May 3rd. All right, y'all, here's that episode you're waiting for. Hello, hello. Welcome to this Friday's in February Q&A episode on the Parenting After Trauma podcast. I'm Robin Goebel, your host. Let's listen to today's question. Please leave your message. Hi, Robin. I am calling from Sydney, Australia. I work with foster carers and adoptive parents, and we're really looking to develop a group in increasing empathy for uh, adoptive parents and foster carers towards birth parents for kind of long-term benefits for children. Any ideas you have would be awesome. 
thank you, Australian friends, for not only calling this question in, but just having this question in the first place. Curiosity, empathy, and compassion are experiences that emerge from what I would call a brain and mind in connection mode. So anytime I'm thinking about how to help somebody move into or increase their feelings of empathy and compassion, I think about how to help that person feel safe enough for their nervous system to move into connection mode. Like what's preventing that person's mind and brain and nervous system from being in connection mode? How is protection mode helping them? And I want to give way more energy to those curiosities than trying to force something to happen like compassion or empathy. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and just say that most of the time when I work with adoptive parents who are feeling negatively towards their child's parents, there's almost always some sort of like unnamed or unprocessed grief underneath those feelings. Adoption, of course, is intertwined with ambiguous loss and and disenfranchised grief and a lot of feelings that we aren't very good at being with, and particularly in Western culture. We don't have a great way to talk about the grief and adoption, and and we don't buy and exchange sympathy cards about adoption, and uh, we don't bring casseroles. And in many, many ways, adoptive parents are given a lot of implicit and explicit messages that somehow having adoption-related grief means that they don't love their kid as much or they're not as happy with the adoption or they're not real parents or, I don't know, something. Adoption starts with the most profound loss that we humans could ever imagine. So. Of course, there's a lot of grief for everyone involved. Of course, of course, of course, adopted kids and people and and parents who have lost kids to adoption have grief. That feels like a piece that is starting to get easier for just even kind of like the mainstream general public to understand. I realize we still have a long way to go a long way to go to like recognize and honor the implicit grief that's inherent in adoption for adopted kids and adults and families who have lost kids to adoption. But what we're getting there, we're starting to have spaces where that's really being talked about. And adoptive parents have grief too. And a grief that deserves to be seen and cared for and a grief that deserves for all of us to be brave enough to somehow wade into it, like somehow wade into this scary place that adoptive parents are feeling and some confusion. Like, how can I have grief about this thing that I wanted so badly? Or how can I have grief about this thing that other people say is the best thing, you know, in the whole wide world, which is to be a parent, right? There's Honestly, there's a lot of places for grief to emerge for adoptive parents. 
I mean, many adoptive parents, not all, of course, but have grief about the parts of their journey that led them to adoption. For some, that's infertility. For some, that's like an unexpected event that suddenly turned their life upside down when they became an instant family. For some adoptive parents, there's this real grief of this isn't the life I had imagined or planned for. Adoptive parents grieve the loss of the intimate biological connection to this child, like the person that they love and adore most in the world, but will never have this unique, intimate connection with. Uh, Adoptive parents can sometimes grieve not being the child's only parents or a life that doesn't involve a lot of time navigating visits. Right. Adoptive parents who adopted kids who have experienced abuse and neglect and foster care will grieve how their child, you know, grieve for how their child wasn't safe before they met their child. And even for the fact that they couldn't keep their child safe. And as confusing as that might sound, because of course they couldn't, right? They didn't even know their child then. But I also have worked with a lot of parents who feel that grief, right? This is their child. And they grieve the moments in their child's life when they didn't know them and couldn't keep them safe. Now, y'all, I actually feel a little bit vulnerable even saying some of these things out loud into this microphone, like who's going to hear this? Who's going to judge this, right? That um, the reality is that a lot of adoptive parents are grieving, like this isn't the life that I imagined, right? And I feel sheepish saying that out loud, So if I feel sheepish saying that out loud and like, oh, is that an okay to say? Like, can I acknowledge that this isn't the life I imagined while also loving this person to pieces and being so glad I'm their parent? Or can I even be honest with myself and say like, I'm actually not that glad that this is how things have worked out. And... I'm still doing my best to parent this child in absolutely the best way that this child deserves. And for some reason, culturally, we have a hard time acknowledging that these two very complex and seemingly like polar opposite feelings can coexist and they can, and we have to make space for these very seemingly polar opposite feelings to coexist so that families raising kids can have their very real feelings without lots of shame heaped on top of those feelings, because it's it's that shame that is contributing to a nervous system that's getting trapped more in protection mode. And feelings of empathy and compassion don't emerge well from a nervous system trapped in protection mode. So anyway, my point is professionals and helpers really need to make it explicitly clear to adoptive parents that their grief is normal, that we're not judging them for their grief. And, and, and that, you know, you as a professional involved in this parent's life, aren't going to decide they shouldn't be parents because they're having some pretty normal feelings of grief. It doesn't make someone a bad parent to grieve for the life that they'd hope to have, it just makes them human. And grieving that will actually help them show up for their kids in the way that they really want to. Many times when there is space given to the grief, 
adoptive parents' mind and nervous system just naturally starts to shift more into a space where compassion and empathy more easily emerge. Another block to empathy is what for many people is that is that for many people it can feel like empathy means excusing behavior. You know, working with adoptive parents, I'm really helping them be okay with the space that I call the both and. And I didn't make that up, but it's a language that I use a lot. The both and one can feel compassion and empathy while still having boundaries and expectations, right? Like having compassion and empathy for behavior doesn't mean I'm suddenly saying that that behavior is or was okay. I recently worked with a state organization on a project that had similar goals to this caller, helping foster and adoptive parents shift into more compassion and empathy for their child's parents. Basically, we took all the excellent training that this organization has given their adoptive parents on their child's history of trauma and how it impacts their behavior and applied it to the child's parents. When I train, and if you listen to this podcast, you've already picked up on the fact that I teach the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human, right? I teach about being human, and then I teach about the impact of trauma on top of that. What I teach applies to all humans to the point that some of y'all are unhappy with the name of my podcast, that it's called Parenting After Trauma. I, I get emails, like a lot of them, from people asking me to change the name of my podcast because the things I talk about don't just apply to parenting after trauma. They apply to parenting, right? I'm not changing the name of my podcast, at least not in the short term. I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen long term? But for now, it feels super important to me to create a space that's very specific to parents who are parenting kids who've experienced trauma. But anyway, I have a couple of core beliefs that I, I work from in my work that every human has infinite worth. Every human. I learned that from Kent Hoffman from the circle of security. He's an amazing Ted talk. I'll put it in the show notes, but all you have to do is Google Kent Hoffman, Ted talk, infinite worth, and it'll pop up. It's amazing. It changed my life. Every human has infinite worth and there's no qualifiers to that. And it's gutsy to start to connect with where that feels hard to believe. Super gutsy. Another really core belief in my work is that everyone is always doing the very best that they can in every unfolding moment. In every moment, everyone is always doing the very best that they can. And sometimes that best is pretty crappy. And sometimes that best changes in the very next moment or was different in the moment before. But in every unfolding moment, everyone is always doing the very best that they can. There's a chapter in Brené Brown's book, um, Rising Strong, I'm pretty sure it's Rising Strong, where she really needles through this belief and she collects data and asks people at dinner parties and finally talks to her husband about this thought. You know, are people always doing the very best that they can? And her husband, Steve, said something like, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing, but her husband, Steve, said something to her which is, which was, you know, I don't know. I don't know if people are always doing the very best that they can, but I do know that my life is better when I believe that they are. I completely agree with Steve. I actually also believe that we really truly are all doing the very best that we can in every unfolding moment. And I believe that my understanding of the neurobiology of how our minds are creating our unfolding reality and how behavior is largely implicit. Anyway, 
I believe that my understanding of like basically the science of behavior does confirm that in every unfolding moment, people are doing the very best that they can. And sometimes that's bad, like really bad. Like you can't take care of your kids because it's not safe, bad. And we have systems in place to set boundaries, hopefully compassionate boundaries and not punitive boundaries, though I know that the way that our culture and society sets boundaries mostly is punitive. We can all hold the both and, you know, that some kids have parents whose own history made it unsafe for them to parent. That can be true while also it can be true that we can have compassion and empathy and of course boundaries for those same parents. So really leaning into all the good, all the goodness that we're teaching parents about their kids' behaviors and their kids' development of their nervous systems and applying that to all humans. What I teach isn't unique about kids or even unique about kids with a specific kind of trauma. It's, it's about humans. And then looking at how our different life experiences has shaped our neurobiology, shaped our memory networks, shaped our regulatory circuits, shaped our attachment. And then how all of those things come together um, and are underneath a lot of the behavior that we see, right? Again, I know that this is so hard. It is so hard for parents of for parents who are parenting kids with these big and baffling, overwhelming, sometimes unsafe behavior that seem to be the result of the trauma that somebody else has inflicted. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible to have compassionate empathy for our kids' parents when adoptive parents are given a space to have all of their feelings with adults, not their children, to process all their very, very complex feelings related to adoption and related to their child's parents. So the bottom line is, is that staying out of compassion and empathy is protective. It's our nervous system working to protect us from something. Compassion and empathy are vulnerable and connecting feelings, right? So if you're working with a family that's having a hard time with compassion and empathy, let's get really curious about what it's protecting that family from. Grief? Anger? Who knows? There's so many options, but look at your program. Look at how it's set up, the education it provides, the support it provides parents. Does it explicitly name the grief, invite the grief to be processed in a safe place with other adults? How are the adoptive parents you work with confident that their feelings of grief or anger or other quote unquote negative feelings won't be punished or judged, but instead welcomed and invited and held with compassion and empathy from you and your organization? I guess in a way, I just kind of summed that all up, right? If we want adoptive parents to feel compassion and empathy for their child's parents, are they receiving compassion and empathy from us as helpers? Compassion and empathy for all their feelings. I want the adoptive parents I work with to know that all their feelings, all their parts are welcome with me. Not all their feelings are appropriate to express in front of or to their children, of course, but None of their feelings are bad and they all are welcome. All their feelings are welcome with me without judgment, without repercussion. Behaviors and actions are a different story. Of course, I have boundaries about behavior. Of course, behavior that's expressed towards me and behavior that's expressed towards kids and behavior that's expressed towards their kids' parents. 
but all their feelings are welcome with me. All right, y'all, there's so much more I could say about this, uh, but I think I've rambled on long enough for today. I do have um, master classes on grief specifically for uh, parents inside the on-demand video library inside the club. So if anybody listening has been, you know, kind of like their heart has been touched and there is this feeling of, I have a lot of grief or I have a lot of feelings that I don't know have been welcomed enough. I don't know that they've been welcomed enough by me. I don't know if they've been welcomed enough by other people. That is one of the super big strengths about the club is that we really talk our talk, walk, walk our talk about welcoming all parts. And we welcome all these complicated feelings without judgments while also having an expectation that the feelings get seen and heard and processed through so that they don't get stuck and they don't keep us in production mode and they don't impact the way we behave towards our children or towards their parents. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's part of what happens in the club. If you're interested in the club, you can go to robingobel.com slash the club, check that out. Um, but I'm so grateful, so grateful for the opportunity to chat a bit about this topic and to know that there's organizations that are out there prioritizing, creating systems of compassion and empathy for parents who have lost their kids. So thank you for calling this question in and thank you y'all for listening. I will see you next time. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash being with, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. 
Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you can get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you can just head to my website, download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now. And I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.